I thank God for our musicians and for all who have led us in this service of worship. We are in a sermon series called Faithful. We're talking about developing the full measure of Christian faith. And today I want to draw your attention to 1 Peter chapter 3. I'll read verses 15 through 16 from the New Revised Standard Version. And the title of today's sermon is Reasonable Faith, an Intellectual Defense of Christian Belief. Hear these words from 1 Peter 3. But in your hearts, sanctify Christ as Lord. Always be ready to make your defense to anyone who demands from you an accounting for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and reverence. Let us pray. Lord God, in this preaching moment, I simply ask that you would help me to speak your word. Help them to hear your word. And Lord, help us all to do your word. I pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. According to 1 Peter 3.15, Christians should always be ready to make a defense of our hope in Christ. The key Greek word in this verse is apologian, which means a reasoned defense. From this term, we get our English word apologetics, which means intellectually defending the faith. While Christian faith requires believing things that cannot be empirically proven, Christianity is nonetheless a reasonable faith. If I were asked to give a reasonable defense of Christian belief, I would start with several good reasons to believe in a creator God. At the beginning of the 20th century, most scientists assumed that the universe had no beginning. But in 1929, Edward Hubble observed that galaxies were receding from ours, and the farther away they were, the faster they were receding. Scientists reasoned that if everything is now flying apart, then at some point everything must have been together in one enormous entity. Subsequent studies have led a majority of cosmologists and physicists to conclude that the universe had a definite beginning, which is commonly called the Big Bang. The Big Bang theory states that long, long ago, a point of pure energy exploded, thereby creating the universe. Harvard astronomer Owen Gingrich marvels at the perfect balance between the outward energy of expansion and the gravitational forces trying to pull everything back together again. Had the universe expanded just point zero 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 
1% slower, the universe would have collapsed on itself. But had it expanded just 0.0000001% faster, the gravitational pull of matter would have diminished too quickly for stars and galaxies to form. Gingrich concludes, the universe must have been expressly designed for humankind. The noted theoretical physicist and cosmologist Stephen Hawking once said, the odds against a universe like ours emerging out of something like the Big Bang are enormous. I think there are clearly religious implications. Along these lines, astronomer Martin Rees has identified six physical numbers that, if changed slightly, would produce a cosmos in which life could not exist. Physicists call this fine-tuning because it appears that the cosmos was rigged to accommodate life on Earth. In 1994, a researcher from the Carnegie Institution showed that Jupiter, which is 300 times the mass of Earth, shields Earth from comets. It keeps them from entering the inner solar system where they could collide with Earth and extinguish life. So the next time you worry about the possibility of a comet flying through space and colliding with Earth and blowing us all up, don't worry. Jupiter's got you covered. Other planets protect us from asteroids. Our first line of defense against the asteroid belt is Mars, which takes a lot of hits for us, but Venus does as well. On top of all this, Many have noted that the sun is just the right distance from the earth. If it were, say, 5% closer, the earth would be too hot to sustain life. But if it were, say, 5% farther away, the earth would be too cold to sustain life. Scientist Guillermo Gonzalez observes that plate tectonics are also crucial for life on Earth, and no other planet or star in our solar system has them. Plate tectonics develop continents and mountains which prevent a water world, thereby allowing us to exist. They also cause earthquakes, but if not for plate tectonics, the Earth would be uninhabitable for humanity. All of this evidence suggests that creation is a finger pointing toward a creator. Did I mention that the Big Bang supposedly sent photons of light bursting forth? I find that intriguing since the Bible says in Genesis 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. God said, let there be light. And there was light. Light. In this way, the most sophisticated science in the world on the origins of the universe is compatible with the Bible's account of creation. I keep thinking about this t-shirt I saw. A guy was wearing it at a fast food restaurant I was at years ago and the t-shirt said on the front, 
I believe in the Big Bang Theory. God spoke and bang, it happened. <laughs> Not only are there solid reasons for believing in a creator God, there are also solid reasons for believing in Jesus Christ who reveals God to us. In the first century, a real historical person named Jesus of Nazareth made some remarkably audacious claims about himself. He called himself the Son of Man, a divine figure from the book of Daniel who has authority over all peoples. Jesus also claimed to be the Messiah, the long-promised King and Savior of God's people. Even New Testament scholar E.P. Sanders, who subjected the Gospels to rigorous historical scrutiny, concluded, We should, I think, accept the obvious. Jesus taught his disciples that he himself would play the principal role in the kingdom. Now, when someone claims to be the Messiah, there are only three possible assessments. Number one, this guy is a lunatic. He's crazy. Number two, this guy is a liar. He's a deceiver. And number three, this guy really is the Messiah. He is who he claims to be. The answer as to which Jesus is relates to his integrity, which is flawless, yet the answer finally hinges on whether he was resurrected from the dead. After suffering a shameful, humiliating death on a Roman cross, only resurrection could validate Jesus' audacious claims about himself. There are several good reasons to believe in Jesus' resurrection from the dead. I will mention four. The first is that all four gospel accounts in the Bible indicate that women were the first witnesses of Jesus' resurrection. In those times, women were not considered reliable witnesses in a court of law. So if the gospel writers were making up the story of Jesus' resurrection, why would they cast women in the role of the key witnesses? They must have been relaying the story as it actually happened. The second reason to believe in Jesus' resurrection is because historical evidence indicates that the tomb he was buried in was empty the following Sunday morning. Matthew's Gospel reports that some people started a rumor that Jesus' disciples came in the night and stole his body. The rumor starters evidently knew that the tomb was empty. That's why they had to explain it. Theologian Wolfhart Pannenberg asks, How could Jesus' disciples in Jerusalem have proclaimed his resurrection if they could be constantly refuted merely by viewing the grave where his body was laid? Pannenberg concludes that the Jews there, as well as the Christians, were familiar with the fact of the empty tomb. Still, the empty tomb proves nothing in itself. 
What if the disciples really did steal Jesus' body and hide it, pulling off the greatest ruse in history? This is extremely unlikely because the disciples ended up suffering and dying for their faith in Christ. This is the third reason to believe in Jesus' resurrection, the witness of the disciples. For example, Acts 12 says, King Herod had James put to death by the sword. The disciple James was martyred for his faith in Christ. Now, if he had been in on a plot to steal Jesus' body and fabricate a story of his resurrection, wouldn't he have renounced his phony faith when they pulled out the sword to slay him for it? Why would he knowingly die for a lie? Early Christian writings tell us that Peter was also martyred. He was crucified upside down for his faith in Christ. Now, if Peter had been part of an elaborate scheme to steal Jesus' body from the grave and hide it and make up a story of his resurrection, wouldn't he have renounced his counterfeit faith when they sentenced him to a cross for it? This is Peter we're talking about, folks. He had previously denied even knowing Jesus three times in a row under far less severe circumstances. Surely Peter would have denied him one more time when they started to put nails in his hands instead of knowingly suffering and dying for a lie. Besides, Judas who betrayed Christ, ten of the other eleven disciples died for their faith. Only John died of natural causes, and that was after he had been exiled on account of his faith. Why would they go through all that for a faith they knew to be a lie? Why would the disciples who had scattered at Jesus' crucifixion end up rallying and then dying for their faith in him? The best explanation is that the tomb really was empty and the women really were telling the truth. And Jesus really did mysteriously and miraculously arise from the dead and he appeared to people in resurrected form. The fourth reason to believe in Jesus' resurrection is the transformation of the Apostle Paul. The book of Acts introduces Paul as a hostile persecutor of Christians who watched people's coats while they stoned Christians to death. Paul himself writes in Galatians 1, I was violently persecuting the church of God and trying to destroy it. But later, Paul quit persecuting Christians and started preaching Christ. He preached in numerous places and suffered imprisonments, beatings, floggings, stoning, and shipwreck for the cause of the gospel. Paul kept preaching Christ until, in all historical likelihood, he was martyred on Nero's chopping block. Now, why in the world would Paul change from a Christian hater into a Christian martyr? He says he was walking down the road one day, and the resurrected Christ appeared to him and changed his life. 
Something had to have happened on that Damascus road since it totally turned his life around and inspired him to preach the gospel through hardship, through suffering, and even to martyrdom. Rationally, I cannot explain why Paul would fabricate the story of his conversion. He had no reason to. It's more likely that the resurrected Jesus actually appeared to him. The testimony of the early apostles confirms that the resurrected Jesus appeared to over 500 people before he ascended into heaven. He was neither a lunatic nor a liar. He was the Messiah he claimed to be. I agree with Pastor Timothy Keller who writes, Jesus himself is the most compelling argument for Christianity. There are good intellectual reasons to believe in a creator God, and there are good intellectual reasons to believe in Jesus Christ. His lofty claims about himself were confirmed by his resurrection from the dead. Of course, there is no proving Christianity, just as there is no disproving Christianity. It all comes down to faith in the final analysis. The scripture says we Christians are called to give an account of our faith. And we are to do so with gentleness, not with condemnation or threat of hellfire. It says we are to do so with respect for others, not with hostility or arrogance or condescension. We are to witness to Christ and defend our faith in gentle and respectful ways. When we do this, it opens the door to conversation. And people might decide to investigate Christ for themselves. Some years ago, there was a young doctor in North Carolina who was an atheist at a hospital in Chapel Hill, he had a patient who was suffering daily from severe, untreatable angina, which is a terribly painful condition. This patient told the young doctor about her faith in Christ, and she asked him what he believed. He said, I don't really know. But her question got him thinking, if I'm a scientist, I should weigh the evidence for God before making a decision. So he began to explore evidence for God and Christianity. He read C.S. Lewis's famous and excellent book entitled Mere Christianity, and he was captivated by several of its arguments. He decided he believed in some kind of God, but he was still trying to make up his mind about Jesus Christ. Lewis had convinced the young doctor that Jesus should not be called simply a good moral teacher because anyone who claims divine status is either a lunatic, a liar, or actually the Lord. The doctor knew he had to decide whether to believe in Christ. One day while he was hiking in the Cascades, he came around a corner and to his surprise there before him was a frozen waterfall hundreds of feet high. In that moment, 
His soul was overwhelmed by the majesty of God's creation, and he knew that his search for God was over. The next morning, he knelt in the dewy grass and gave his life to Christ in faith. His name, by the way, is Francis Collins, who has gone on to become one of the preeminent scientists in the world, leading the Human Genome Project and leading the National Institutes of Health. As Christians, we don't leave our brain out of our faith. To the contrary, Jesus calls us to love the Lord our God with all of our mind, with all of our intellect, with all of our brain power. Christianity is not intellectually unavoidable, but it is intellectually defensible and it is intellectually engaging. We Christians are thinking people and we are believing people. We are discerning people and we are spiritual people. We are reasonable people and we are people of faith. We Christians have reasonable faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, our marvelous and gracious Savior. Amen.